would be the first known case of Ebola in Ghana since the outbreak was made public earlier this year. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Well, in the headlines this morning, HSBC cuts its investment outlook for Hong Kong over Occupy Central. LegCo President Zhang Yok Sing warns China that no universal suffrage in 2017 would damage Hong Kong people's confidence. And German investors get an $80 billion RMB boost in China. First, a little tease of what's to come. We're not year five in a seven-year recovery. I think that we are year five in a 10-year recovery cycle. So that is Jonathan Golub from RBC Capital Markets. He says equity markets will continue to run. In our featured segments on the show today, we look at wealthy mainland entrepreneurs making some big investment bets overseas. Bloomberg's Jijing Wu will join us for that discussion. We'll be looking at the startup scene in Hong Kong with Graham Leach at Hong Kong Polytechnic University. And Ben Cavender from China Market Research will join us for a look at China's top consumer trends. Here's how markets are shaking down in early trading. The Nikkei down 76 points at 15,303. Looking at Australia, the market is slightly higher but up less than a point. And in Seoul, the Kospi is down less than one point. In Forex trading, the dollar-yen is 101.79. That's not much of a change, but that's the dollar a little weaker against the yen. The euro, $1.36, uh, and the uh, renminbi is now 6.165 to the U.S. dollar. Well, HSBC has cut its investment outlook for the Hong Kong stock market. The bank says the Occupy Central campaign could hurt relations with the mainland and damage the local economy. To many, the downgrade doesn't come as a surprise. But others thought that the reference to Occupy Central was a bit unusual. RTHK's Altus Wong reports. In its quarterly report on global equities, the bank cut its rating on Hong Kong stocks from neutral to underweight while maintaining its overweight rating on the mainland market. The bank said it's concerned about negative news flow in Hong Kong without elaborating. HSBC isn't the first bank to downgrade its outlook on Hong Kong stocks, but it is the first to cite Occupy Central as the reason. Morgan Stanley cut Hong Kong's economic growth forecast on the same day citing various risks, including a slower mainland economy and risks to tourist and retail spending in the city. Comments by financial institutions about the Occupy Central campaign have generated a backlash in recent weeks. Late last month, the Hong Kong branches of the top four accountancy firms, collectively known as the Big Four, published a half-page advertisement opposing the threatened sit-in protest in Central. But some of their own employees later took out their own newspaper ad, saying their boss's statement does not represent their stance. The organisers of the civil disobedience movement have said they are hoping to use peaceful protests to shut down the business area if the government's plans for democratic reform do not meet international standards.
Meantime, LegCo President Jasper Jung says no universal suffrage in 2017 would hurt Hong Kong. He told the South China Morning Post in an interview that it would be a serious blow to people's confidence in one country, two systems. But he also said that mainland leaders might rethink Hong Kong's autonomy if they thought conditions here could threaten national security. On Wall Street, stocks were down from record highs, but the mood is still good and the rally will run longer, so says RBC's Jonathan Golub. I think a lot longer. I mean, the, the one thing about this really slow recovery is that it's likely to be elongated, which means we're not year five in a seven-year recovery. I think that we are year five in a 10-year recovery cycle, which means that we're going to be talking about, about Dow 20,000. Uh, Jonathan Golub there. The S&P 500 down 0.4% at 1977. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 44 points to 17,024. And the Russell 2000 Index of smaller companies slid 1.8%. That was the most since April when there was torrid selling in tech and biotech. Back to Mr. Golub. He says there are several reasons why company profits are good even in a slow economy. One is if you take... You know, take revenues, which, which are tied to GDP, which are going to grow, let's say, three, four, five percent. But in a slow growth environment, companies focus on returning capital shareholders. So buybacks add a lot. They focus on cost maintenance. So, you know, they, they squeeze more out of margins. They move more businesses offshore, which is not a great thing for the U.S. economy, but it is actually good for the tax rate that they pay. And, and what you get is this weird world where you have six to ten percent EPS growth and a, a relatively lousy market. And, and, you know, folks keep saying, how long can this keep going on? It, it really is, you know, to use the word new normal, but I think it's the environment we're living in. The yield on the 10-year Treasury note fell three basis points to 2.61%. In some other news, China has awarded Germany a quota of 80 billion yuan to buy mainland securities. It's part of the RQFI scheme, the Renminbi Qualified Foreign Institutional Investor Program. Meantime, the Hong Kong government says it will amend the law to waive stamp duty for the transfer of shares of all exchange-traded funds, ETFs. It will try to do this in the next legislative season. A deputy Secretary for Financial Affairs and the Treasury, Selena Yan, told a LegCo Financial Affairs panel the waiver would cost about $100 million in lost tax revenue each year. But she said that the waiver on the 0.1% stamp duty would help Hong Kong's competitiveness. She said many other markets don't impose such a tax. There are currently 124 ETFs listed in Hong Kong, and that makes it the second largest market in Asia. Briefly, in Europe, uh, equity markets were down as well. Kind of a similar story to Wall Street, where there was selling, but it wasn't too aggressive. The FTSE 100 down 42 points at 68.23. The DAX off 103 points at 99.06. That's a drop of 1%. The Cacaron down 63 points at 44.05. Our first guest this morning is Ben Cavender, a senior analyst with China Market Research Group. Ben, good morning. Good morning. Well, let's uh, talk a little bit about consumer trends. And uh, I also wanted to ask you about uh, Occupy Central and, and the March here and how much press it was getting uh, up in Shanghai, for instance. But let, let's uh, let's start off with, um, you know, some of the top trends that you're watching now at China Market Research Group. Sure, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think if you look at the consumer market right now in China and what's been happening this year, uh, we have seen consumers becoming a little bit more conservative in terms of how they're spending their money. But I think the key thing is they're continuing to spend and they're spending at or even at a higher level uh, versus what they were doing last year. 
Uh, they're just spending on different things. So I think a few of the key drivers that we're seeing going forward, number one, people are very worried about health and safety. They're looking at what's happening with the pollution right now in the market in China, and if anything, it's getting worse, and that's really worrying people and causing them to allocate a lot more money to uh, imported food products, imported uh, nutrition products that they view as sort of keeping them healthy and keeping them alive almost. Um, so that's one thing. I think another thing that's really important right now is you're seeing consumers really backing away from some of the sort of ostentatious luxury purchases they've been making in the past and instead focusing more on what I call lifestyle experiences. So if you look at the brands that are doing really well right now in China, it would be companies like BF that owns the North Face that are performing quite well because they're selling products that really cater to this idea of having a really interesting life experience. People are really looking at how they can have that balanced lifestyle and sort of try new things that are going to set them apart rather than just having things that make them look like they've got money. So those are sort of the dominant trends, I think, in terms of what's shaping the consumer market right now. I think people overall are reasonably optimistic. So um, I'm actually fairly optimistic in terms of what the year ahead is going to look like. A couple of other interesting items in the news uh, that refer to consumer activity in China. Uh, Pansy Ho was out saying uh, on Bloomberg overnight that Macau is actually facing threats to its growth from China's slowing economy and, and also from uh, people's habits that uh, Chinese tourists are, are traveling more frequently and farther afield. Are you seeing that? Well, I think one of the issues with Macau is that in the past they really generated most of their revenues off of VIP gamblers who come down as part of a junket and really spend a lot of money. Um, those people are trying to be a little bit more careful about how they spend their money, and so they're tending to go further afield and they're not maybe making some of those trips anymore. I think Macau can still do very well, but they're going to have to adjust their business model to catch some of the more sort of middle-class Chinese consumers that might be looking for more entertainment options, but maybe aren't making gambling the main focus of their trip. So there's going to have to be a little bit of a market evolution there. And perhaps uh, countering a little bit uh, your comment about uh, moving a little bit away from luxury purchases, Barclays has a report out overnight that uh, Tesla, the electric car maker, um, will report pretty strong second quarter sales for the Model S that actually show China compensating for some uh, softer demand in Europe. Um, now, I, I can't expect that you would know specifically uh, a lot about Tesla, but um, are luxury cars still in high demand in China? Oh, so, so I think the auto market's a little bit different. People are still, in many cases, buying their first car, or they've bought one or two cars and are looking for the car that really defines them as an individual. Tesla is an interesting case because it provides an alternative to going out and buying, you know, a BMW or a Mercedes or a Lexus or something like that. So people see it as something that's really going to be kind of unique and set them apart. So it plays into that lifestyle concept a little bit. They can say, you know, we're interested in new technology. This is something totally different from everything else on the street. So I think that's one reason why Tesla is going to do quite well in China. And I think the other reason is government's done a really good job supporting the idea of electric vehicles. I'm giving dispensations for license plates in a city like Shanghai, where a license plate costs 15,000 US dollars. Um, if you buy a Tesla, you're basically getting the license plate for free. So there's some incentives that are built in as well that are driving demand. Yeah, some of the car stocks have been moving pretty well lately. Uh, I, it looks like uh, people have, yeah, I mean, not slowed down too much on buying cars overall. Well, there's 
tremendous amount of room for growth if you look at some of the second, third, fourth tier markets. That's why you've got companies like VW that are basically opening two new factories right now. There's, there's still a tremendous amount of consumer demand. Um, it might not necessarily always be for the highest end luxury models, but there's a lot of room for growth in the middle right now. And, and so I think a lot of the foreign automakers are going to do quite well over the rest of this year and the, the coming two to three years. So hitting on these themes about uh, mainland tourists moving further afield and traveling to distant places on the planet uh, compared to uh, usual, and also this theme about uh, maybe moving a little bit away from luxury brings us to Hong Kong. You may have noticed that our retail sales uh, are, are down quite a bit from uh, peaks that we saw over the past few years, uh, and that ties in with um, you know mainlanders going elsewhere, but also with some of this anti-mainland sentiment that uh, does exist in Hong Kong. How much do average consumers mention that to you about, uh, well, they'd rather go elsewhere than Hong Kong because of this? We're, we're absolutely hearing this a lot more. We have a lot of people say to us, you know, I used to always go to Hong Kong. It was the easiest place for me to go. I didn't have visa problems. I could do a quick shopping trip and come back. But they're saying, you know, now people aren't really that friendly. We don't get treated that well in the stores. Um, you know, we see people on the street that aren't really necessarily happy that we're there. Now that we're able to go to other markets, whether that's the U.S. or Europe or somewhere else in Southeast Asia, um, we're preferring to do that because um, we're getting a better experience. We're having uh, a more interesting lifestyle uh, exposure as well. We're getting to see new places, and you know, people like that we're there. They, they enjoy that we're spending money there and that we're, we're sharing our culture, and so we're choosing not to go to Hong Kong. And what about the uh, big march that we had here? Uh, estimates from between 150,000 or so up to half a million um, uh, were, were made. Uh, did that get a lot of press coverage in China, or were the official media downplaying it? Uh, it, it definitely did get press coverage. Um, I, I think that uh, people are, are quite aware that it's happened. I think the, the prevailing sentiment is, you know, that nothing is going to really come of it and that it shouldn't be seen as a big deal and, and you know, things are the way they are. Um, but I think it is going to impact probably, again, whether or not people are willing to take trips down there, whether they're going to be planning on spending their money in Hong Kong versus in other markets. Okay, well, sounds very interesting, Ben. Thanks very much for joining us uh, here on Money for Nothing, as usual. Ben Cavender, a senior analyst with China Market Research Group, on the line from Shanghai. Okay, so kind of on a Pink Floyd theme this morning, you may have heard that uh, they're coming out with a new album, the first album out in 20 years. I won't give you details here, but it's there for you if you'd like to find it, if you're a big fan of Pink Floyd. Well, in New York, hailing Uber is cheaper than using a yellow cab, at least at the moment. Uber, the car hailing app, is taking it to the mattresses with cabs in New York City. The company is temporarily cutting its prices by 20%. Uber lets customers request a car with a smartphone app. Using your phone's GPS, Uber will send its closest driver to your location. The fare is charged directly to your credit card once the ride is complete. It's kind of cool. You don't have to use cash, and you can track um, the driver. You can rate the drivers and they can rate you. And by the way, Uber is just getting started here in Hong Kong. 
I'd like to talk about startups now, and so we say good morning to Graham Leach, lecturer at Hong Kong Polytechnic. Uh, good Graham, morning. Good morning, yeah. Always good to have you on the program. Uh, <laughs> startups, um, you know, this really gels with a little bit of the mood that you see out in the com- in the community. Uh, you probably just noticed in the paper today that uh, Chinese University did a, a survey. Young people are kind of decrying uh, the opportunities that they have in Hong Kong, and they're actually blaming the government. Don't know exactly um, why, but uh, the survey says that youngsters between 15 and 24 are losing confidence in the Hong Kong government, and uh, it, they think that their prospects are, are bleak. Now, if we could try to bring that into opportunities at the grassroots level, you say there's a bit of a disconnect between people at the grassroots level and the institution, not just the government, but the institutions in Hong Kong. Can you explain that? Uh, sure. Well, the way I look at it, society is kind of like a cake with several layers connected together. And if the layers aren't aligned or not connected properly, then you're going to have this uh, people people basically falling in the gaps. And that might be the one of the contributors to the sentiment amongst these young people. But I, I must say that Hong Kong on the very highest level has been doing quite a lot of work in terms of trying to create the right kind of preconditions of success for these young people. It just hasn't quite filtered all the way down yet. Do you think that people are wrong, that there are actually a lot more opportunities than perhaps they um, know or understand? Well, it's like that everywhere. We have this notion of markets being imperfect in terms of information. I think the young people of Hong Kong may not be looking at the same sources of information as the people who run Hong Kong and drawing the wrong conclusion as a result. So this isn't meant to be specifically about young people, but just on this theme, because it is interesting, uh, if you had young people listening to this program now, um, you know, what are the sources that they should be looking at? Where should they be going to find meaningful work? Well, I think they should be doing two things. First of all, they should be talking to their government and making their views known so the government knows what this particular constituency is looking for in terms of enabling. The other thing they can do is they can look on – there's a wide number of programs available that they can look into both formally and informally. The government's got lots and lots of programs going. For example, uh, we have this initiative – it's fairly recent. It's called Start Me Up HK. I saw the ads uh, running for that, uh, and it's quite interesting to me. They were hiring a director and I think also um, a second-level uh, manager. Um, the, mm-hmm. the, that campaign has, has closed, uh, I think, but, um, but that's, that is very interesting. I was um, intending to do more on it, so I'm glad that you bring in more information on it today. Well, I, I know a little bit about it because I know some of the people who are responsible for running it. Uh, there's uh, Simon Galpin, the director general, right at the very top. He yeah, seems Invest Hong Kong running this. Um, this yeah. yeah, he looks really, really, really uh, plugged in to what's going on. And mm. uh, apparently and obviously they're hiring people to try to make this program go somewhere. And it's got a lot of momentum and a lot of money behind it. But the, the next layer down is and, – and between that, you know, that layer seems to be pretty good. But the thing is they're still f- finding the leader for that particular program. And that's kind of where if I was going to look at any particular weakness in Hong Kong society, it would be that we don't have a champion. We have a lot of uh, self-appointed champions or people who have been appointed to constituencies that aren't necessarily connecting all of the dots. So, I mean, to, maybe to use a World Cup uh, type of – uh, analogy: We need a coach who's got all of the right qualities, reputation, um, influence, authority, and the persuasiveness to bring ho- the Hong Kong, what I call the innovation economy, together as a team. This sounds like a more serious comment about overall leadership in Hong Kong. Do you think that uh, thought leadership uh, isn't where it should be in a city of this um, importance, a world city in Asia? Hong Kong has got a unique culture, and it's a 
it's like a a marche. There's lots of ideas contending and competing for attention. I mean, it's, we have a very very powerful laissez faire economy and and mentality here. But I think that a guiding arm sometimes m- might be needed and might be useful to help just give some sort of overall direction. Otherwise, what we end up what ends up happening is you get a lot of smaller initiatives all chasing the same thing because they're media-driven instead of saying, well, this is my little microclimate and here's where I have to sort of do the, the groundwork to set up kind of like a farmer. You've got to plant the seed and let it develop. If you, you, ch- you say there's a lot of that here. There's lots of co-work spaces, accelerators, incubators, uh, publicly funded uh, and mm-hmm. privately funded initiatives. You say the grassroots is well and good and healthy, but it's the icing on the cake that um, isn't sweet enough. Well, the, yeah, there's I think there's like 30 different institutions that have emerged just in the last few years. This is an, an amazing growth. It's just that there's, you know, there's lots of people who are interested. They don't quite know how to get in, get going. Um, you know, entrepreneurship, I, I like to think of it as a plan B type of thing for Hong Kongers. They, many, many Hong Kong parents are saying to their children, no, you've got to go work for a major brand. You've got to go. No, if those jobs aren't forthcoming, they have nothing else to do. So I think entrepreneurship is an excellent alternative, and it'll serve you well in the workplace once you do get land that big job. The problem is citizens, great attitude, can do – they see the evidence of entrepreneurship and success in that all around them. Grassroots in terms of these institutions, hey, they're super too. There's lots of them. There's just that one unifying voice that's – Got to get filled. It's missing, yeah. yeah. Um, now, you say that um, a lot of these things are happening, but they're kind of low level and they're not getting a lot of exposure. Mm-hmm. Um, of the startups that have been successful in the past couple of years, do they tend to fall more in the tech space or is it pretty well balanced? Uh, well, from where I see things, the, the startups that are really getting traction make, make something. They're, they're in the light manufacturing oh. area. So it's not apps that you're talking about it's so much. It's, it's, um, it's not um, creative web design type uh, activity. It's more like light manufacturing. Well, there's, there's lots of apps being developed. Uh, so it's difficult to you know, keep a close eye on what's going on in there. Mm-hmm. But in terms of a company that's actually got positive revenues making money and making things, these are the ones that's, that the, the Hong Kong government is very behind this. So you can you can see all kinds of encouragement in terms of finances, space, and coaching to uh, to have a sp- particularly technology embodied in hardware encouraged in Hong Kong. You can get one to two years rent free, for instance, at um, uh, out of Cyberport. But can you get much cash? Uh, most of what you get is in kind contributions. So what ends up happening is, yeah, there is a, a funding issue in Hong Kong that seems that some of the money is going towards in, like a lot of infrastructure and advisory. But as we all know, uh, startup companies are hungry for cash and they could really use some. And that's sort of where the angel investment community is supposed to step in. Is there much of an angel investment community here? There is one. Um, it's very small and it's not really um, – supported by any kind of international organization. So Hong Kong is not that largest city. And also Hong Kong is uh, really fascinated with uh, property. So it's difficult for a startup to compete. Property and banking. Yeah, well, the, the returns in, in simple property speculation in Hong Kong can often make a – and you have something in the end. I mean, if things don't go well in the property market, you've still got a hard asset to hold on to. We're, we're not lazy here? We, we don't have an entitlement mentality? I don't think so. I don't see it within the people that I come into contact with. What I see is people trying to get uh, curious, wanting to know more, wanting to get enabled, but not really 
knowing where to go or who to speak to because there's so many competing voices. Okay, so you can you can feel people listening to this program who've been thinking about uh, an idea, you know, coming up with uh, some sort of small company. Um, what's the approach they should take? Just sort of walk them through um, a playbook. Oh, oh, okay, I'll try to give you a, like a 30-second thing. Uh, you, you can give it about a one- to two-minute thing. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> give fine. you a little more time. We've Super. got about three and a half minutes before the bottom. Well, you know, at, in, in the Innovation Tower where I work at PolyU, we have a bunch of different types of initiatives to try to get people moving along. One of, one of them is along the uh, social enterprise level. We have a, a, an institute-level group there called the Design Institute for Social Innovation. The, one of the programs that I'm involved with, which is not quite emergent, but will, I think will be officially ratified soon by the, by the university, is called Ignite Innovation. And that's about bringing industry plus education plus the citizenry together and work on what we call cross-discipline uh, type uh, issues. And we noticed that most of the real breakthrough innovations, which is what this program is about, comes when one particular area of expertise – bumps into another one and there's this massive knowledge transfer and then all of a sudden you get what i call step change or quantum leaps in innovation also known as discontinuous innovation the real big stuff Mm. and so does all of this leave you more optimistic for the next uh, three to five years in hong kong or kind of scratching your head you say we're not lazy we don't have a an entitlement mentality yet we see um you know we see kids from 15 to 24 with a fairly downbeat assessment of their of their future prospects well there is this one thing that i wanted to touch on which is the um hong kong government's reorganizing itself to create the innovation and technology bureau and i think that if this oh, yeah. if the secretary for innovation and technology is nominated and takes this leadership position and then starts to sort of just get everybody within this ecosystem to agree to leave each other a place to develop their own particular area then the government will be offering these you know this this cohort of, of 15 to 24 year olds this young group somewhere to go and then they'll get directed to the various places where their own particular direction is taking them so i just think it's a matter of traffic routing kind of and also having a traffic cop somewhere that you can speak to and say hey i need to get from a to b How do, do you do think that? it's ludicrous that some um, quite a few um, liberal democrat lawmakers uh, are very much opposed to this new bureau being set up well, my understanding of the situation is that the the opposition is linked to other parts of their political agenda. They want the money spent um, more directly helping uh, people who need more welfare. How can I speak against that? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to speak against that. You're a Canadian, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard to speak against that. But, um, you know, the, the money that they're... You know, the the money that it would take to set up a bureau, I mean, lots could be gained. You've just been talking about uh, mm. the attainment from that as well. I think the appropriation was something in the order of 30 million Hong Kong dollars, if I remember. Just not that much money? Well, I mean, it's a lot of money, but it's also trying to get in its own way. It's trying to get down right down to the bottom, to the citizenry of Hong Kong. It's just not necessarily the constituency that these people holding up the legislation want the money to go to, which I think yeah. is probably the older people. But the young people of Hong Kong are the future of Hong Kong. So I think they should get something in terms of an enabling budget, institutions, a leader who can tell them uh, it's possible and where to go, and an ecosystem that enables whatever their particular direction may be. If it's You would have been perfect. Why didn't you apply for that uh, Start Me Up Hong Kong job? 
Oh, I think it's a wonderful job, but it's only available to permanent Hong Kong residents. I, I don't see. have that yet. Yeah, uh, that's another. A lot of administrative blocks here. Uh, I'm hitting 60, so I'm out of a job on September 18th. Even though I still feel, at least, the audience may differ, I still feel quite capable in my job. Graham, thank you very much. Graham Leach, lecturer at Hong Kong Polytechnic University. So briefly in the weather today, um, before we get to the news and then the program continues, we're in our hour-long format now. Super Typhoon Nyugori is centered about 300 kilometers. Radio 3. 300 kilometers southwest of Okinawa. It's forecast to be moving up towards the Rikyu Islands. Not affecting us too much, but we do have mainly cloudy skies with some showers today. 32 degrees as the high. The news with Samantha Butler. The United States has offered to work with Germany to resolve fresh spying allegations that threaten to derail relations. Radio Australia's Michael Vincent reports from Washington. The US won't comment directly on the allegations that an arrested German spy had passed on secrets to American officials. It emerged last year that America's NSA had spied on the German leader's personal phone. Damaged by that incident, today the White House was at pains to talk up the relationship. Spokesman Josh Ernest. It's built on a lot of shared trust, it's built on friendship, and it's built on shared values. And uh, we value that relationship and that's why we're going to work through uh, this matter and ensure that it's resolved appropriately with the Germans. Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel has said that if the latest allegations are proven, it would be a serious case and a clear contradiction of trust. Japan is braced for destructive winds and huge waves as a powerful typhoon heads towards the southern islands of Okinawa after sparing the Philippines. Japan's Weather Bureau says Typhoon Niyoguri is expected to reach Okinawa later today, packing winds of 198 kilometres per hour and gusts of up to 270. It said the storm could generate waves up to 14 metres high. The national broadcaster NHK said 450 people were evacuated on Okinawa's main island and thousands of homes were without electricity. Preliminary results in Afghanistan's presidential runoff show the former finance minister Ashraf Ghani is ahead of his main rival Abdullah Abdullah. Mr Ghani has got 56% of the votes that have been counted so far. The BBC's Karen Allen reports from Kabul. Three months after Afghanistan began the complex process of electing a successor to President Hamid Karzai, the provisional results were announced. They put Dr. Ashraf Ghani in the lead by more than a million votes, with more than 7 million ballots counted out of a turnout of more than 8 million. In the first round, Dr. Ghani had trailed behind his rival, Dr. Abdullah, but his fortunes appeared to have been reversed when the country went to the polls once again in June. Amid widespread allegations of fraud, the Independent Election Commission has announced that 7,000 polling stations will now be audited before the final result is announced in two weeks' time. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis on this Tuesday. We're in our new hour-long format as Backchat takes a break for the summer months. Backchat will return about the first week of September. We continue with uh, our business and finance coverage this morning, and we'll also have a lot more news, particularly political news in this half hour. Well, hopes have been raised that the gridlock in LegCo's finance committee may be eased, and that could allow funding applications on everything from subsidies for low-income 
families to the redevelopment of Queen Mary Hospital to be passed before the summer recess. The committee's chairman, Ung Lung Singh, is proposing that it hold additional meetings this Saturday to try to clear dozens of items held up by a series of filibusters. But People Power lawmaker Albert Chan has warned that additional meetings would be pointless unless the government rearranges the agenda to allow lawmakers to vet uncontroversial items first. If those items that uh, we believe are people livelihood issue and we can support, then we will not uh, delay the decision of those items. But if there are items that the government want to use this opportunity uh, to get through uh, with the, the vote that they have, then uh, the people power will definitely use filibustering to try to stop those items to be approved. Well, Ng Lung Singh agrees. He says he's told the government to rearrange the agenda order to put livelihood items first. And he says he's hopeful that an extra eight hours on Saturday would allow these funding requests to be passed. Democratic Party Chairwoman Emily Lau, the committee's vice chairman, is backing the chairman's call for the committee agenda to be adjusted. I hope the administration will withdraw certain uh, particularly controversial items because that would provoke members asking a lot of questions and moving a lot of motions and whereby uh, we'll make uh, very little time available to deal with all the other items. I think that is a fact that the administration has to address. Emily Lau. The time is now 24 minutes before nine o'clock. Well, we had mentioned in our headlines this morning uh, that there's been a real trend of wealthy Chinese entrepreneurs making a number of overseas investments lately, including Alibaba Group and Dalian Wanda Group. A lot of talking points. And so we are going to welcome now Wu Jerling into our uh, studios, a Hong Kong reporter for Bloomberg. Ms. Wu, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Uh, nice to have you here on the program. Uh, so Chinese billionaires, uh, are they... Are they learning from the West or are they embarking out on a brave new world on their own? Uh, I think it's a bit of both, actually. Um, they are definitely learning from the West. For example, uh, this billionaire that I just spoke to very recently, uh, Four Sun Groups, Mr. Guo Guangcheng. Mm. So he basically claimed that he built his empire following the Warren Buffett model. And that's quite interesting because um, that model uh, has basically two pillars. One is basically um, having all the insurance assets to secure long-term stable financing and then using this money to invest in various other sectors where he sees growth and value. So, he's yeah, invested, he's definitely... Learning. He invested quite a lot of money in New York City, didn't he? Uh, yeah, he did. And the most interesting one, and quite recently also, was the purchase of the Wong Chase Manhattan. It's yeah. the quite iconic building in Manhattan. Yeah. So what are the types of um, investments they're making, or is it pretty well diversified, uh, in your view? Uh, yes, pretty much. But he does have a focus also. So uh, basically, he says the kind of uh, investments that they make will need to have a China angle. So it could be brands which are quite well known, like Folly Folly, Club Med, the French resort. He invested in both. Or it could be the technology know-hows like industrials or the TMT sector. This marks a little bit of a, of a change, I guess, uh, in the sense that... Um, to date, mainland entrepreneurs uh, have had this enormous domestic market to be concerned with and, and really has occupied a lot of their expansion over the past 20 years. Now it seems that they are looking outside of China, trying to develop global brands rather than just domestic brands. Is that right? 
Uh, yes, that's definitely right. And I guess one reason to that is the economic slowdown in the domestic market. And the other reason is they feel like they are big enough that they have to expand globally. The domestic market alone is not enough for them. Yeah, and what are some of the brands that have been developed, say, over the past five or ten years that are seeing some success outside of China? Mm, uh, for one, I think Lenovo is quite a good example. They bought IPM's PC business, and they are generally seen as not just a Chinese company, but a global company these days. And they've done quite a few successful acquisitions overseas. And Fosun is also considered quite a uh, repute. Uh, quite a good reputation while they do um, overseas acquisitions. And if you look around, some of the global brands, you might not notice they have a Chinese investor or even controlled by the Chinese companies, like Clubmat. If you look at the brand, you would say that's a French resort, a very high-end luxury one. But and instead actually, it's Fosun. <laughs> yeah, Fosun is the yeah. biggest investor, which is good for the brand also because they're opening a few um, more resorts in China for Clubmat to get into the Chinese market. What else? What about higher? Are they seeing much success abroad these days? Uh, not recently. Um, I think they had some early successes, and they were seen as one of the first Chinese companies to go abroad. But now, mostly in the uh, emerging markets, I think. I'm not entirely sure, but I think they are mostly seen in uh, like emerging Asia and Africa, those emerging markets, but not less so in the developed markets. You mentioned Warren Buffett uh, as, a, as a hero to some. Uh, what about the link to uh, philanthropy and charitable giving? Um, Warren Buffett and and Bill Gates went uh, to China to try to encourage um, more and more people to join the Living Pledge, whether that um, were entrepreneurs or successful business people would donate uh, half of their wealth. Um, is are we seeing a lot of that in China now? Is it is it on the um, on the increase? Uh, I think it's definitely on the increase. I'm not sure how many people signed up to that pledge by uh, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. Um, but for example, Guo Guangchan, the billionaire I spoke with recently, he uh, donated about 100 million US dollars to charity since uh, 2012. So that's not a small amount, but compared to his total net worth, I guess it's definitely a lot less than half. Is there sort of a, a level of, of success that, uh, you know, where people get to, where they realize uh, they've made it, they're not going to lose it, therefore they can start talking about giving away a large portion of it? And is that a little bit more difficult to achieve in a budding economy, a, a, a fast-growing, younger, big economy? I think so, and I think there's also this uh, sense of... Um insecurity in yeah. China that you basically have to um, have some money at hand. It's funny, though, because put it, I guess. Yeah, it's funny that you say with a slowing economy, it is actually giving um, business people more confidence to look elsewhere in the world. You think that, you know, perhaps uh, the reverse would be true, that they would they would be losing a little bit of confidence and therefore would be more cautious. Mm, that could be true, too. But most of the people I've spoken to, they basically think it's about opportunities rather than about the concerns domestically. From the work that you did, uh, you know, how, how, how successful uh, or, or, you know, when you look at the uh, overall economy based on the research that you did, how comfortable do you feel at the moment with the way the economy is churning? the reforms that are being introduced and that measured up against uh, uh, levels of growth? 
that's a very big question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think um, from the people I've spoken with recently, uh, most of them are entrepreneurs and uh, bankers at uh, investment banks. So they seem to be optimistic, although cautiously optimistic, I would say. Uh, they think the restructuring is a very big um, project that China is working on, and there are definitely roadblocks ahead, but it seems to be going to the right direction. Yeah, the, conf- the question was really just about confidence. Um, do you find that um, you know people that you talk to still have a lot of confidence, even with a lot of claims that the Chinese economy, uh, you know, is is too credit driven and investment led, and and it has a lot of um, high debt that won't be easily worked off. Do you find people are still pretty confident? I think people in specific sectors like the TMT sector and the service sectors like consumers and retails, they're still very confident. They think the consumer demand in China is still very good. Uh, despite the slowdown in the economy. But if you are in the real estate sector or the mining sector, then um, it's a lot, uh, people are a lot less confident. And you can also tell from uh, the volume of deal making they are doing abroad these days. Uh, the mining companies are doing a lot less. So, of the people you interviewed, um, who are the most interesting characters? Uh, there are a lot. I think most of the Chinese entrepreneurs are very interesting. They and they all have a bucket of stories to tell you, and, <laughs> and they um, have and they have a lot of swag, I guess. <laughs> kind of. And uh, Gu Guangchang, for example, is very interesting himself. He came from this very poor background, got a scholarship to go to Fudan University in Shanghai, and then started his own business. Kind of a typical China dream story here. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's very interesting. Uh, thanks very much for joining us here on the program, and best of luck. Thank you. That's Pleased to be here. Zhe Jingwu, a Hong Kong reporter for Bloomberg. Money for nothing. The time is now 16 minutes before 9 o'clock. More news coverage dead ahead. Music was my first love. Inspired by music lovers. Uncle Ray Kadira with a superb balance of vocal and instrumental classics from the last six decades, including the obligatory Solid Gold Elvis track. Or two. You'll hear treasures you may have missed. Rock and roll, swing and smooch your way down memory lane with Ray Kadira, 10 till 1, weeknights on Radio 3. Very good morning to you. You're listening to Money for Nothing, now in our hour-long format from 8 to 9 o'clock. Well, relations between the local media and the police have hit something of a low recently. Some journalists have accused the force of obstructing them as officers carried off hundreds of protesters who held an overnight sitting in Central last week. They say they were told to leave the area and were kept at a distance from the clearance operation. In a bid to improve media access, members of the Hong Kong Journalists Association held talks with the police public relations Bureau yesterday. And to tell us how those talks went, we're joined on the line by the association's vice chair, Shirley Yam. Shirley, good morning. Good morning, Brian. How did you feel the meeting went? The meeting? Yes, with, 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 the, with the police uh, yesterday. Did you feel as though uh, they could feel your pain? Well, it is uh, the more formal uh, working meeting, if you know what I mean. Uh, so we express our opinion and our concern 
and uh, the police spokesman didn't say much, in fact. Did they say that they would be reviewing uh, their operations on that? Uh, did they explain exactly, um, you know, the rationale behind it? Uh, I no, not to my not to my knowledge. I was not there, but uh, I was briefed by uh, those who attend the meeting. So it's uh, more more like, oh, okay, we, 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 your opinion noted. And what were the main concerns that the uh, JA raised? It's more about the uh, all sort of unnecessary blockage that we uh, we that our, our journalists have been experiencing uh, during the, the 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 demonstration and clearance that morning. One one example is uh, they've already used uh, uh, barracks uh, to 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 block uh, the journalists and to form the condor line. But in front of the uh, barrack, there were three layers of uh, police officer. I mean, forming basically unbreakable um, human war, which make it very difficult for the journalists to have a, a good uh, idea on what exactly is going on behind the, the condor line. While at the same time, uh, the Secretary for Security, Mr. Lai Dong Kok, was saying that, oh, the whole operation is uh, it's, it's done fairly with no excessive violence because it was done under the full observations of the Hong Kong press. But in fact, that's not the case because uh, uh, in, in various occasions, I mean, the journalists are finding it really hard to, to actually uh, look into, look beyond the condor line what, on what's going on. Did police actually acknowledge that they told journalists to leave? Uh, they they did not exactly say that in the in the in the meeting, but uh, oh. Well, I am not quite sure on that point because I was not in the meeting. But on the point on whether they they actually did ask the, the journalists to leave, it's, it's all videotaped. I mean, it's all on record. I mean, it's, I think it's hard for them to deny it. And what about police activities during the course of the march? Uh, was that also um, part of um, of the points made uh, uh, to police? Uh, they... they uh, the operation during the march is uh, not uh, part of our concern. Uh, our concern is more during the, the clearance uh, operation. Yeah, and what do you think were the main things that went wrong during the uh, clearance? And also, um, if you think about it, uh, there were probably about a thousand uh, students out there from the Federation of Students and Scholarism. Uh, does that um, mean that when Occupy Central does happen, it's going to be almost impossible for police to remove people, uh, you know, on, on the on the orders of magnitude in terms of people that will be there? Right. Uh, I, I guess it's the job of the uh, of a journalist to to go and observe and, and to tell the public what's going on. That observations uh, plays an important part that to make sure uh, any operations is done legally and and uh, with reasonable uh, arrangement and force. Do you think that relations between journalists and police are at a, a kind of low? It will, that would be a comment that I hate to agree, but uh, that is certainly the case. Uh, well, uh, especially uh, between uh, frontline journalists and frontline police officers, the, um, the kind of, um, of uh, uh, lack of trust uh, is unprecedented. So you're on this program as a commentator, not as a reporter. So I can ask you, why do you think this is happening? Well, I guess uh, the police, I mean, may, I mean, some of the police may have uh, got an impression. Basically, it's not 
it's not just between the the police and the press. The, uh, the lack of trust is happening between the police and the general public as well. And you- uh, especially, say, I guess the, the most of some of the, the frontline police officers, they they were very unhappy with the sort of uh, uh, assault, verbal assault that was thrown at them. Uh, that get and which of which intensity have have obviously increased over the years. So uh, this kind of sentiment uh, will reflect not just towards their feeling on on members of the public, but also on the press as well. Do you believe this is coming from the police leadership, in other words, from the commissioner, or do you think it's coming from uh, from the executive council and uh, and the CE's office, or do you think it's coming from Beijing? Uh, well, I, I guess it's it's more to do when we talk about feelings. It's more. Uh, from the uh, from the police officer themselves, in in terms of the encounter they have uh, with uh, members of the public in various demonstrations, uh, what 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 obviously the um, the the head of police have not done is in addressing this and in and in countering uh, this and and in and in speaking to their fellow members on, on, on whether that's indeed the case. That's interesting that you say that, because a lot of people have said that they felt that police officers on the ground uh, were behaving um, uh, in a proper fashion, but they felt that the leadership was, uh, you know, for some of the complaints that came from the march itself, were not so much on the um, actual constables and officers, but uh, more on the leadership of the police. Well, let's put it this way say, the unnecessary blockage that uh, the police officer had put up uh, uh, during the clearance, that's certainly uh, orders from the, from the leadership. Okay. But feelings of frontline police, it's a different thing. Yeah. The reason I'm saying this is um, I have put two police officers in my family. Mm. Yeah. And so I'm speaking both as a commentator and as, uh, as, uh, as a members of a family with police yeah from my personal uh, uh knowledge as well yeah okay well anyway thank you very much um for taking out the time uh best of thank luck you, Brian. and uh, we'll we'll talk again shirley am there who's the vice chairwoman of the hong kong journalists association in other news the group managing director of hkt alex arena has defended the new pricing of the mobile services after the company raised fees and, and charges by up to 45 percent the increase would effectively bring hkt's prices in line with that of csl a unit that hkt's parent company pcc had bought for $18 billion. Mr. Arena said the company had merged the monthly plans under the two units. It's not a question of just putting up prices. I think that's very simplistic because, frankly, you don't compare apples to grapefruits or bananas, right? This is what we, what we, what we have to do here is we are supplying our customers in Hong Kong, whether they came from the HKT customer base or whether they come from one of the CSL customer base. We're providing our consolidated customer market. Ian Pooler asked Charles Mock, Legco's IT sector representative, for his view on the price increase. First of all, it actually proves uh, one of the observations of the uh, Communications Authority. When they approved uh, the plan, they commented that uh, the move, uh, even though they approved it, uh, will uh, bring less competition in the uh, mobile uh, communications market in Hong Kong. And I think uh, this particular...
particular move by Hong Kong Tea uh, basically uh, proves that uh, that observation is correct. And uh, in a way, the effect uh, came a little bit uh, even probably more immediate and sooner than maybe most people would expect. And second, it might also demonstrate, shows that uh, HKT or the new merged uh, HKT and CSL, they probably have a strategy in terms of their business to try to focus on the higher end of the market. So it's probably true that it's not just a matter of raising prices, it's probably also reflects that the company is trying to focus on uh, the higher end of the market and they might want to, even if obviously some customers will choose to leave because of this uh, 45% increase in the price, but uh, it's probably a conscious thing that they are trying to do. Legislator Charles Mock, before that, the Group Managing Director of HKT, Alex Arena. IBM says it has signed an agreement to help curb pollution in China, starting with the heavy smog that afflicts Beijing. Alex Price reports. The company says it's launching a 10-year program called Green Horizon that will support the mainland in transforming its national energy systems and protecting the health of its citizens. The Beijing municipal government is one of the first partners to come on board. The project will seek to identify the type, source and levels of emissions in the city, which has long grappled with worsening pollution and smog. By having access to real-time data about Beijing's air quality, authorities will be able to take steps to either curb pollution or alert citizens more efficiently. IBM's effort also seeks to more accurately forecast China's energy needs to help it draw more from renewable sources and curb carbon emissions. China's Supreme Court has set up a special tribunal to deal with environmental cases amid rising public discontent over pollution. Officials said last week that the number of overseas tourists visiting China's capital fell by 10% last year compared to 2012, with air pollution blamed for the decline. Meantime, leading air quality scientists from around the world are in Hong Kong this week. They're taking part in the International Conference on Indoor Air Quality and Climate. And the uh, conference is being uh, conducted at the University of Hong Kong. One of the keynote speakers is Professor Chandra Sekhar from the National University of Singapore. He'll be speaking on the topic, Why Are Our Air-Conditioned Buildings So Cold? Our Mike Weeks asked Professor Sekhar if an overcooled building affects indoor air quality. Certainly it does because thermal comfort is the issue that we would relate directly with overcooling and uh, indoor air quality and thermal comfort are so closely intertwined that uh, it does affect the environment in which an occupant in a building um, stays and works and does all the various activities. Are buildings not so overcooled in Singapore as they are in Hong Kong? Uh, well, I guess uh, in general, the designs of buildings are done in such a way that uh, there is a, a kind of a natural inclination to go towards a, a lower temperature. And the underlying issue really is about the humidity. We are in the tropics in hot and humid climates. If we do not handle the uh, what we call the moisture removal from the air, then that adds to the humidity buildup in the buildings. And uh, overcooling is, is a consequence of being able to remove the moisture better. So you just lower the temperature and there's more condensation that happens to the air conditioning system. And that's what leads to 
uh, an environment that becomes extremely cold. Now, let's also remember if we want to correct for the temperature, we could by using some reheating, and that is an energy penalty. We don't normally do that in comfort air conditioning. That's Professor Chandra Sekhar from the National University of Singapore on Hong Kong Today, early this morning with Mike Weeks. Well, we close out the program today. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. Some of the top stories that we had been talking about this morning, HSBC cutting its investment outlook for Hong Kong over the Occupy Central civil disobedience campaign. LegCo President Zhang Yuxing warned China that no universal suffrage in 2017 would damage Hong Kong people's confidence. They would lose confidence in one country, two systems. And German investors getting an $80 billion renminbi boost in the RQFI scheme in China. Here's how the markets are trending now. The Nikkei is down 133 points at 15,245. In Australia, the index is down a quarter of a percent. Seoul is slightly higher. Looking at the dollar yen, 101.73. The euro is at 1.3607 U.S. dollars. Get a check of the weather here as we go out. Super Typhoon Niagari centered about 300 kilometers southwest of Okinawa. It's forecast to move north or northwest at about 22 kilometers per hour across the vicinity of the Ryukyu Islands. In terms of us, mainly cloudy skies today with about uh, 20 or 32 degrees as the maximum. And by the way, the forecast for the next couple of days, hot with a few showers expected here in Hong Kong. Morning Brew with Phil Whelan coming up next. This is Radio 3. Thanks for being with us. We'll be back tomorrow with Money for Nothing.